0: Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Layton Kling. Welcome everyone to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Jam-packed show for you coming off of Black Friday. Coming up on today's show, a couple of quick stories to start things out and a couple of earnings calls. We'll talk about Kroger's earnings as well as a deep, deep dive into big lots Layton also visited san francisco he'll talk about some of his retail experiences there as well a reminder you can like us rate us however you do access us whether that be apple podcast spotify podcast addict podcast republic Podbean. the list goes on and on you can also check us out on twitter and instagram at retail podcast brief note i hope everyone can put up with my voice this week Starting to lose my voice, trying to save it for the podcast here, so I'll give it the best go as I can, and hopefully it's not too terribly annoying. Well, we start the show with a couple of quick stories, as I mentioned, but the first story of which stuns those that follow retail closely, and honestly, Leighton, you and I were both stunned. We exchanged a lot of text messages about this. It's tragic news is Mark Butler, the CEO and president of Ollie's Bargain Outlet, passed away unexpectedly last Sunday. Now, it would not be a surprise to anyone who listens to the show that he was one of our favorite retail executives. We heard him on a great number of earnings calls since the company went public in 2015.
1: Definitely tragic news for everybody in the retail industry, but especially those close to that specific retailer that has seen a, a ton of growth over the last several years, over the past decade and a half or so you really have to wonder what the company's direction is going to be going forward because he was really the driving force behind the brand everybody who talks about all these bargain outlet talks about the uniqueness of the brand and what they bring to each individual store and how they have these very large grand openings if you will and i had recently spoke about actually visiting an all bargain outlet near Toledo Ohio and it certainly is unique and you really have to wonder How the executive team, or if the executive team, is going to carry on with that same sort of feel going forward.
0: And he was the only basically surviving member of the group of four, not surviving necessarily, but surviving with the company, the group of four founders there. Under his watch, Ollie's went from a 28 store regional chain in 2003 to a major player east of the Mississippi with well over 300 stores. Mark Butler also saw massive expansion efforts, increased deal flow to fuel that expansion, and he oversaw their IPO in 2015. He was only 61 and again, that's the tough part of the news. You really certainly thoughts go out to his family and his immediate coworkers there. He'll be succeeded on an interim basis by John Swigert, who's been an executive with the company for 15 years. He's been a lot of the same earnings calls as Butler has been on has been with the company as an executive nearly as long as Butler has been CEO. So I don't know that you're going to see too many immediate changes, but certainly difficult on a personal level for Swigert when you've worked with someone so much over the last 15 years. That's certainly a big void that'll be felt by the company. But above and beyond that, again, our thoughts out to his family. Well, our next short news story has to do with Aldi. And the delay of their expansion into the american southwest now this comes to us via the always excellent Winsight grocery business publication aldi has long aimed for rapid expansion into the early part of the next decade so the early part of the 2020s but this particular story at least calls those plans into question as far as they pertain to arizona and it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that because arizona was such a big part of their growth plans Maybe calls into question some of their national growth plans as well. Now, again, according to the Arizona Republic, Aldi has put plans of their Arizona expansion on hold, at least temporarily. Their original goal was to open stores in the state beginning in 2020, but that's become an impossibility as their distribution center in the area has been delayed. In fact, articles as recently as 2018 boasted that Aldi could open as many as 40 Arizona stores. Indeed, it appears as though the distribution center delay is the crux of the issue here. The facility, which was going to serve as a warehouse as well as a regional headquarters, is now reported to be several years out and just... Kind of for some backstory, for some clarification in regards to Aldi. Aldi operates around regions which are tied into their distribution networks. For example, they have one in Batavia, Illinois. Olathe, Kansas is another. So they've got several of these regional hubs. It's really not possible for them to have stores too far outside of those regional hubs because of the way they're set up.
1: In a statement to Winsight Grocery Business, Aldi noted that they are still on path to reach their growth goals by 2022 but declined to speak on the arizona expansion specifically however one local official in the article said that their facility in goodyear arizona could be and i quote several years out this indicates a time horizon beyond 2022 for likely expansion not just a slight delay the delay according to the same quoted official here is due to a logistics facility's redesign Although a delay is never a good sign especially for Aldi here with their massive growth plans in the southwest, it is likely a positive that that the delay is caused by an internal re-imaging of the center setup rather than the company balking at expansion as a whole. Indeed, if this is true, this sounds a bit different from another international grocer, Lidl, whose expansion plans unfulfilled left several landlords out to dry, according to information from North Carolina and other states. Despite the appearance of an intentional delay, we find it somewhat worrisome that no building permits have actually ever been pulled for the facility in Goodyear. Tammy Vo, a spokesperson for Goodyear, said, and I quote, we believe the plans for this project are still several years out end quote so you see several years doesn't sound that promising trend and if permits have yet to be pulled at this point it may indeed be about three years or more before this facility is actually done still aldi would be hard pressed to expand without the necessary networks in place this much was confirmed by spokeswoman from buckeye arizona west of phoenix by the way who said that none of the stores would be open until The DC was done. The distribution center has to be finished. It is said that Aldi acquired more than a dozen sites in Arizona on which to build stores. Again, this according to the Arizona Republic. However, at this point, the Republic reports that several of the building permits for these locations have since actually expired. Additionally, the company has pushed back opening dates for several locations. It is initially appeared to have been some locations were already have been open by now, but none have actually been open. The Buckeye location was actually one of these. Going through the Arizona Republic's blow-by-blow coverage, you see that most of the planned locations either stalled outright in this approval stage or have had permits expire or have never even put forth formal plans for each individual build. A representative from Chandler, Arizona, summed it up when they said they had not even been in contact with anyone from Aldi for months. So what does this mean overall? Big picture. We see delays on retail projects all the time, but these delays indicate that Aldi, despite their insistence otherwise, is probably not on pace to realize their expansion goals by 2022. A positive Phoenix-based Thomas Brophy of Collier's points out is that Aldi has not listed any of the potential sites yet, for sale. So they're not looking to divest anything yet, but it does appear as though delays are going to be inevitable.
0: And at the very least, their delays in Arizona are allowing other retailers to come in and solidify their market share. It's been a pretty common story over the last five years or so that value retailers are taking market share from the typical grocers. Kantar put out one such study a few years ago, for example. However, ultimately, and one thing that we've kind of stuck to in our evaluation of this is that It's difficult to tell simply because a lot of studies are based around traffic rather than basket size. And companies like Aldi and Lidl are, of course, private. And as we'll talk about here in a second, Kroger certainly doesn't seem to be the one that's losing that market share. Even still, let's assume that were the case. This delay allows companies like Smart and Final to swoop in. And we talked about how impressive their Arizona stores branded as Smart and Final Extra were back in September. Now, for Aldi to compete with Kroger's Fries, Arizona native Sprouts, and Smart and Final Extra, they'll need even a stronger value proposition than the one they already have. Smart and Final, by the way, just leased their three Phoenix area locations in 2015. They're not going anywhere, and they're seeing reported success from their Extra concept there, and that was certainly the case in the locations that I visited a couple of months ago. They were packed. Smart and Final, as far as they are concerned, kind of in that bargain segment, in that value segment for grocers. And as Winsight points out in this particular article, all these prices on milk, eggs, and other staples are gradually aligning with traditional grocers. Still somewhat cheaper, but no longer providing the out-and-out value they once did, especially when you compare the value you get at Aldi with the convenience you're getting at some of these other retailers like Sprouts, like Fry's. Additionally, Winsight notes that this is an odd trend for Aldi. As an example, they point to their expansion in Southern California in 2016, just three years after initial speculation on their willingness to build there. In this case, it's going to be way past three years after Aldi bought the properties on which they want to build before we're likely to see any of these grocery stores. So, never a good sign. Aldi maintains they're still on track, but... As you look at this story, you kind of wonder if there aren't cracks in the Aldi's armor because of the delay on this distribution center. How long does it take to rethink plans? I'm not 100% sure, but I also know that it shouldn't take you two to three years to change plans around on a DC overall. Now we move on to the third story in this very fast moving retail focused podcast. We're going to start our earnings coverage from last week with Kroger. A ton of businesses reporting earnings last week, five below. Dollar General, so on and so forth. We've chosen Kroger and Big Lots to cover here on the show. Big Lots, we haven't covered in a while. We want to do a deep dive on them in the second half of the show. We're going to talk about Kroger here now. They reported numbers more or less in line with analyst estimates. As such, the movement of Kroger's share price was more or less in line with the rest of the market after the call. Now, this will be a shorter earnings story since we covered several of their more recent initiatives during our look at their annual investor conference. That said. I wanted to address the numbers really quick. Analysts came into the call late and expecting earnings of $0.48 per share. Kroger slightly missed with adjusted EPS coming at $0.47 a share, but it didn't seem like analysts were all too worried about that.
1: No, no. And a portion of the adjustment came from continued impairment charges following the Lucky's market investment from a while ago. And so this was something that everybody was aware of. Adjusted earnings per share was actually down a cent from a year ago. So the year ago numbers, but not altogether. That's not a bad thing considering the massive internal investments we've continued to see as of late. At the same time, they did note a benefit provided to SGNA from the Restock Kroger initiative stating that there was a decline by about 15 basis points directly stemming from their work on that front. Outside of earnings per share, the numbers were mildly good with identical store sales growing 2.5% excluding fuel impacts. And in the past few years, we've actually seen Kroger sales increase in line with inflation for the most part here. They seem to be outpacing food inflation, which is always good for one of the nation's largest grocers. Digital sales had a positive 70 basis point impact on overall comps. This increase in identical sales, by the way, improved their year to date numbers to an increase of 2%, pretty much matching inflation. Further, overall sales grew 2.7%, excluding fuel sales. We should note that Kroger's definition of identical store sales may be a little bit different from the conventional retailers we do cover on the podcast. Since it is different from most comps, we're going to give you the definition right here, an industry exclusive, if you will. They're looking only at stores that have not relocated or expanded over the last five quarters. A lot is to be said here because the key caveat, since relocations are often used in comp calculations, We must tell the difference here. Also, additionally, a lot of other retailers look at only the last four quarters. We're going a little bit further with five there. So they're trying to make sure that we're doing an apples to apples comparison. And that is fair to the shareholders because after all, Trent, this is a non-gap measure. Additionally, identical sales include digital sales that touch the retail store in some way, which is, in Kroger's case, the vast majority, of course, of their digital sales. As far as the call itself, that most of the beginning of the call was spent with CEO Rodney McMullen really talking about how great his company is, so how great Kroger has been doing. There was a lot of self-back padding there, and if you you really want to talk about some of the details. What interested us was some of the trends that might be affecting the grocery industry on a more macro level. For one, McMullen did mention that produce was their star category for the third quarter. He was mindful to point out their new slogan of freshness for everyone and how well received it's been, but it would not have made that much of an impact in the third quarter. So we're looking at numbers that wouldn't have had much of an impact based on that new slogan but he was proud of it nonetheless it is worthwhile to wonder if this is an industry-wide phenomenon or one that is just isolated with kroger and i must say trent this is right in line with walmart's new initiatives walmart has been all over the media landscape i see twitter posts about it i see instagram posts about it walmart was eyeing a revamp of their produce merchandising for some time now since september 5th when they actually rolled out produce 2.0 so we talk about target and the produce sector and how they've revamped a lot of their merchandising the war is on in produce and honestly trent it's more of a race to the bottom in terms of margins but nevertheless i digress there beyond produce they mentioned that beverages also outperformed greater comp levels including adult beverages there so alcohol but again, this harkens back to what we discussed with Target. Kroger, like Target, is seeing a real benefit from relaxed adult beverage laws in a number of states. Smiths in Utah and King Supers in Colorado stood to benefit most in the third quarter. Additionally, CFO Gary Millerchip noted inflationary pressure in pharmacy, which we've actually been hearing about from the big players in that space. Walgreens, the major one there that saw a sharp decline in their stock price as of late, but also dry goods and dairy. Food inflation, or the lack thereof, has been a constant topic over the last several years. In this case, this is really the first time we're hearing on the dry goods front as far as inflation is concerned. Dairy historically has been up and down in the last decade inflation-wise, so hearing that it is going up is a bit intriguing would be curious to dig a little bit more into that as far as grocery specific news or Kroger specific news they mentioned that an increase in overall share of cart for private label brands is actually still up 3.4 percent in the quarter and we've been talking about their private label initiatives for some time wondering if that's going to mature but it looks as though they are still growing at a decent pace and this includes by the way Trent the impact from 231 additional private label products rolled out in the quarter alone so of course that's going to help the overall revenue from private label brands again they are bullish on vegan and meat-free products and we should continue to see private label product rollouts in this category or in these particular categories over the next year
0: one other thing i wanted to mention actually a few other things that i wanted to mention about this earnings call this third quarter for them marked the ninth consecutive quarter of year-over-year shrink rate improvement. And I'll let that soak in. Again, we're talking about shrink rate for a massive grocer. This is something that can be fairly volatile in grocery from year to year and location to location. So to have widespread, company-wide improvement like this is very noteworthy for Kroger. Now, on the negative news front, on the other side of that, Kroger did incur $80 million worth of severance charges in the third quarter as a result of eliminating some middle management roles. Never like to see good retail employees losing their jobs, so that is unfortunate. They also talked December holiday sales, uh, food sales surrounding the holiday season. They project those to kind of echo what they saw in November. They talked a lot on the call about consumers trading up with strong momentum in wine and their Murray's Cheese attachment. Now, when we think of trading up, we think of maybe people being willing to spend a bit more for higher quality product, one of the reasons why their November sales were up incrementally. But McMullen was clear to point out it isn't just consumers trading up in terms of quality, but a larger package size as well, indicating household economic strength. He talked about on the call that when you see the economy maybe not so strong, consumer sentiment lower, People are opting for smaller and smaller packages. However, what Kroger is seeing is people are starting to invest in larger and larger packages. Finally, they also mentioned that use of their fuel rewards program was up nationwide, and they used that to kind of tie into their overall drive towards instituting margin because of course there's been so many investments in price across the grocery landscape it's not just Kroger doing that it's a lot of different grocers doing that we think of Walmart as being one of the other primary ones Gary Millerchip again the CFO said on the call that you know actually the food margin was up slightly this quarter but even if that food margin declines they look at food as the major hook. Their margins are actually going up on fuel because of measures implemented and actually technology implemented to improve fuel sourcing, so that's a positive for the company. But they view food as the hook that's going to bring customers in. It's going to build what they call the foundation for customer loyalty, driving traffic. And then they can build on that drive for traffic by creating alternative profit streams by building out their health and wellness business. If we talked about some of the margin pressure from pharmacy, but pharmacy sales were actually up in the quarter and they feel like the pharmacy profit margins will actually turn around. So some of the things that Kroger is working on it's not always about food margin and even though they might be investing on price here and there, they're not all that concerned about the future of the company as far as how to get that margin squeezed out because they do feel like they have alternative revenue streams that are higher margin now after this short break we're going to do our deep dive on big lots and also Leighton and i are going to talk about some retailers we visited in the last week or so All right. Well, as we do from time to time on the podcast, Leighton and I travel quite a bit. And so we'll talk about different areas, different regions that we visited retailers in. Leighton, I know you were in San Francisco actually over Thanksgiving and Black Friday. And I know there were more than a few retailers that you visited there.
1: Yeah, I was fortunate enough. People talk about the traffic in Los Angeles, California. People talk about the traffic up north, what they call NorCal, I'm learning, uh, in San Francisco and San Jose a lot of traffic because there in Silicon Valley, you have the headquarters of Facebook, you have the headquarters of Google, you have offices from Amazon, you have offices from nearly every large startup that you can think of either in the software industry or those trying to make it in the crowded app space now. And also a lot of financial institutions. Wells Fargo has a very large presence there, Bank of America, Chase. So overall, luckily, I was not hitting a lot of traffic which means that I could go out and about and tour different areas both older areas and a little bit newer in terms of new retail development which is always exciting overall I didn't hit hardly any traffic except maybe on Monday when I left so I was in San Francisco Trent for about five days immediately on my list was a Kmart just about 15 minutes south Of where I was staying. So I was staying south of the airport. There's a Kmart in Redwood City. The Kmart's been there for quite some time. It's what we would call a mid-sized Kmart. It was well-staffed. It had a lot of product. But it just wasn't that well taken care of. They had an auto center. The front of the building was a little bit dilapidated. The interesting thing of note here. And I had sent you pictures the other day, Trent. was The front of the building It just looked out of place. Because here you have this random Kmart amidst brand new office and multifamily development, multi-million dollar development. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars just across the street from Kmart's parking lot. So in my mind, my real estate hat was telling me, you know what, in about two, three, four years or even sooner, this area is going to be redeveloped into something that we're seeing across the street. So another office development, maybe a new retail development, Regardless, you have this Kmart that isn't probably the highest and best used for that particular area. But regardless, like I said, Trent and I talked about this. I gave pictures to Trent. Uh, you should probably check out our Instagram at Retail Podcast, also on Twitter at Retail Podcast for a glimpse of that particular Kmart. We move on from there. I went on some mall exploring and overall Trent, I went to three different malls. The shops at Hilltop Mall, which is a mall in Richmond, California, probably the worst mall I've been to in person in terms of occupancy. I would say it had around a 35% occupancy rate. Sears was still there. They were anchored by Sears. There was actually a new Walmart, which was interesting because almost no shops on the inside. We're talking about the smaller suites on the inside of the mall were really operating anymore. And so you had not only Walmart and Sears, but then also a Macy's, you dig a little bit deeper, as someone who loves retail would, you would find that Macy's actually purchased that particular building years ago in sort of a larger acquisition of another company. And so they really don't have any reason to leave since they own that building, as you see with a lot of older tenants, such as JCPenney owning some of their mall centers as well. So If you look at that mall, one of the worst ever, but they are looking to redevelop it. If you look at the opening date for that Richmond mall, again, the shops at Hilltop, 1976. So the mall's seen a lot over the years, but it really hasn't been transformed The new owner took over management not that long ago, really looking to make it a multi-dimensional space, if you will. So they're going to have many different things, not just retail, but they're going to have an outdoor space. They're going to have an outdoor space that leads into multifamily housing. So a new apartment complex is going to be built. And if you look at the footprint, it's quite large. And that brings me to Saramonte Center, which also has a very large footprint. I visited this. It's in Daly City, California, which is just right near South San Francisco. It's just to the west of South San Francisco. That was built in 1969 in Trent. This mall must have had 99% occupancy. This is actually a mall that was once anchored by Montgomery Ward and J.C. JCPenney. Both of those retailers have since gone. Target is now there. Dick Sporting Goods is now there. And along with Macy's. And so you look at retailers like this and you can certainly believe that this mall is thriving in the age of newer development. They've redone a lot of the insides. The mall is beautiful. Again, highly occupied. There was what looks to be a defunct Sears and they have not found someone to occupy that space as of yet, but that is a mall worth visiting. Its opening date was in 1969. Again, that mall is going to be called Saramonte Center. Lastly, Trent, the last thing I'm going to talk about here, not the third mall I visited, although that was a very interesting mall, but the Whole Foods, Whole Foods has a massive presence in terms of the grocery retail landscape in San Francisco, particularly downtown San Francisco. Typically, Los Angeles, Orange County, you will find targets everywhere serving customers for a lot of their grocery needs, but Whole Foods had a massive presence. I counted seven or eight Whole Foods just in the downtown San Francisco area. Very interesting to see that their only main competitor that I saw was Safeway. So really no one there except maybe the small mob and pop shops to serve customers like a convenience store would. Whole Foods is pretty much dominating the space, and what's more fascinating for me is the fact that each one of their stores was tailor-made for that specific location, and they varied in square footage, so you might get a very small store with only one entrance or exit, and then you might also get a large store with several restaurants around it, or immediate access to a Starbucks nearby, so I thought that was very interesting and how they pretty much just wanted to have that presence. They were steadfast in their belief that their customer base was strong in San Francisco. And I will have to say that while traffic was very low on the streets, traffic was very high inside those individual Whole Foods locations.
0: Well, I'll keep mine fairly short. I didn't visit maybe the diversity of retailers that Layton did, or at least the interesting diversity of retailers that Layton did. But I did go to a Kmart that is soon to be going out of business, one of the last in Colorado. And, you know, honestly, just the visiting of it was sad enough. It was about 100,000 square feet of merchandise for a once-bustling Kmart condensed down to about 10 or 15,000. I say once-bustling. That much was validated by numerous visits there, but also I ran into one of the members of management at this store. They confirmed that, yes, indeed, even after all of the other store closures, this store, one of the top 10 percent, in the country, and you might ask, why is it closing? They don't know either. They weren't given a reason for that. But the reason I wanted to mention it is I was thinking about my interactions there and watching the employees, and it really kind of struck home as to why we do this podcast in the first place. I think retail is the type of career that a lot of people pass through it. For some people, it's an absolute life vocation, but I think it makes an impact on everyone. And it's kind of interesting because retail sometimes has this capacity to kind of put its hooks into you to plant a seed and not let go and i think that's what you were seeing from the employees of this kmart you know it would have been easy enough it was nine days from closing when i visited this kmart it would have been easy enough for those employees to just be mailing it and for the management to be mailing it in they were still bustling around facing shelves they were taking a lot of pride in their work joking around with one another and you wonder yeah are they in the last stage of grief or, or what have you but all of them took pride in the company, and the store manager that I talked to said, hey, I planned on retiring with this company, and now that's not going to be a possibility, and I'm sad, but you know, at the same time, we knew it was a possibility for just working at a Kmart, but I think just the pride that these employees were taking in their work, their willingness to continuously uphold corporate mandates, also pretty interesting. You know, if you go to an office building or something like that where the company's gone bankrupt, the employees know they have nine days left, you walk in, they probably don't care what's going on in there. But it's different in a retail store, and just the level of pride is really what I took away from that. And again, it comes back to why we do this podcast and why we have, a surprise to us at least, a surprising number of listeners that are out there willing to listen is because retail is so important to so many people. And I think it's easy for people to cover closures of stores. Just this last year, had so many store chains closed down. Now, Kmart is still around, but Shopco is not. Payless Shoe Source is not. There are scads of other ones. Dress Barn is soon to have gone away. And there are employees and former employees associated with all of those. And those brands, even though they're gone technically, still left an indelible imprint. You look at the reaction to Toys R Us going out of business. So again, I think it kind of brought me back to why we do the show in the first place, but it was heartening at least to see the massive amount of pride the employees took. One side note there, there were at least, oh, I would say four pallets worth of floor polishing materials there, so that struck me by surprise. Usually back when I worked at Kmart, which was many, many moons ago, we wouldn't keep that much on on hand, but they were selling a lot of fixtures and the like, and perhaps the most frequently occurring fixture was actually floor polish. So I'm not sure what to take from that, really. But I did manage to get a few mementos from the store, and you can view those up on our Instagram page, again, at Retail Podcast. Well, I know, Leighton, one other thing that we wanted to do before we get into Big Lots is we each wanted to talk about where we visited on Black Friday and an item or two that we procured in retail stores surrounding that so-called retail holiday.
1: My shopping was very boring as I was in San Francisco actually looking around at the different sites to behold, but I did find time to go to bestbuy.com because of you, Trent, you keep complaining about my audio quality and saying that perhaps I need a computer upgrade. My computer, my desktop is around eight and a half years old and it was time. It was time to trade it in. I need to not be so cheap sometimes, Trent, so I decided to buy what was originally $900 on BestBuy.com, a new computer for around a $550 price point. So I saved a pretty penny, and hopefully I can improve the audio quality here so that my brother doesn't complain anymore when I send him my files. But I will say, Trent, that for all of the talk about how online merchants have really taken the cake here. I did see a ton of cars, not only in those shopping centers that I had listed earlier, but at those individual retailers, niche retailers, if you will, as well, trying to get the best deals out there. People were standing in line for days, and I'm just very curious as to how that will ever change, because at the end of the day, Trent, while my sole purchase for Black Friday was made online, again, bestbuy.com. I can't help but feel as though people are going to want to take part in sort of the event-like theme that is Black Friday. They want to get out there with their family despite the traffic, despite maybe the bad weather in certain regions of the country. But overall, I will say that I had a pleasant experience online. And if I had more time, if I had more time on vacation, if I had more time in my daily life, I probably would have spent a little bit more of it shopping around with all of those tens of millions of people who also participated in the brick and mortar shopping experience. But enough about me, Trent, what did you buy, if anything?
0: Well, I went to a few stores. I can't say that I bought anything offhand. Those that I was with uh, did buy things, but I went to Michael's and Dick's Sporting Goods, actually. So two kind of non-traditional brick and mortar retailers. When you think about Black Friday, you typically think of You know, Target, Walmart, Macy's, and so forth. But Michaels was actually fairly busy. Dick's Sporting Goods, even busier. I was very impressed with the traffic at both of those stores. This Michaels was the same Michaels I had talked about a while back on the show in terms of being in the midst of swapping out planograms, that type of thing. Most of the renovations, most of the replacement in terms of where the products were going was done. There were still quite a few products in pack away over the store shelves. Overall, I was very impressed with the traffic, drove by a number of shopping centers, absolutely packed everywhere. So I know everyone's talking about brick and mortar numbers being down. I think it's more of a matter of brick and mortar sales being spread out over a longer period of time. One other thing I'll note is the day prior to Thanksgiving, I went to the store to grab a few last minute essentials. We were hosting Thanksgiving for several people this year, and I basically needed a scythe to get through the aisles in the store. It was So tremendously packed. This particular store was actually an Albertson Safeway location. And it was more packed than I had ever seen it before. Keep in mind, this location is also open on Thanksgiving. So kind of an interesting phenomenon there. It was more packed than I had actually seen it. I'd been to the same store last year just prior to Thanksgiving. More packed than that. So just something to kind of keep in mind as we get to some of those fourth quarter earnings calls. And we talked about Kroger. They saw a lot of success in November. We'll have to see if that translates to other grocers. Well, our last earnings call coverage on the show, and a nod to the retail segment we began the show discussing with the morning of Ollie's CEO's passing, we're going to talk about big lots now, as big lots actually saw a big surge after earnings on Friday. Now, they came out with earnings last Friday. Trading was up at parts of the day over 25%. After store closures and a reevaluation of its concept four to five years ago, It appeared as though Big Lots could be positioned for growth. It even said so on its Investor Relations page. In fact, they still had the headline, Positioned to Grow, right atop its Investor Relations page. If they are positioned to grow, we're not seeing it as much now as we were five years ago. Although, we do think there are some positives to come out of this earnings call. Maybe not a 25% stock jump worth of positives. Now, since that point in time, five years ago, Big Lots has found straddling off-price with everyday goods to be a difficult proposition. Now, overall, Big Lots has aimed to become more of a neighborhood shop rather than a bargain hunt. They've turned their attention towards covering essentials, and they might be turning away from that. They've got this new transformation being referred to internally as Operation North Star which, by the way, is kind of ironic since they closed all their Canadian locations back in 2014. Just to kind of set the table for this earnings call, and I'll let Layton go over the numbers, they suffered a loss of $0.16 cents per share in the third quarter last year. Analysts were expecting this year's quarter to be even worse, with a loss of $0.21 cents per share. As a backdrop to their earnings call as well, they've been working to become more efficient on the back end of things. They just sold their distribution center in Rancho Cucamonga with the intent of doing a sale leaseback for the time being. The sale leaseback will continue until their new Apple Valley Distribution Center is ready for occupancy in 2020. The company is hoping the new DC will assist in the company's evolving needs. As getting product to stores more quickly becomes a paramount concern as they stock more perishables. But more than just perishables, stocking a lot of furniture. Needing those distribution centers able to handle that amount of furniture moving through them. All that said... Their second quarter earnings weren't exactly a dumpster fire so that would be last quarter for them comps up 1.2 percent even if adjusted earnings were down about 10 percent over 2018. now let's talk this year's third quarter late
1: yeah overall their numbers were at least in line with internal guidance excluding money received from the sale of their rancho cucamongo dc their adjusted net loss per share came in at 18 cents this was actually worse than last year but better than analysts expected By the by, they use these proceeds to actually pay down some of their unsecured line of credit, which should parlay itself into interest savings, of course, long term, which will help their balance sheet. Their overall sales were up slightly by about 1.6%. This was entirely due to relocated stores and and new high-volume stores added to their portfolio. Store count was up slightly for them, which is a good sign, ending the quarter with 1,421 stores versus 1,401 stores last year reversing the prior or the last three years or so trend of store closures we've been talking about their repositioning in the different markets and we were always wondering when that number was going to finally go back up as an example they had 1430 stores at the end of 2017's third quarter so it's gone down and now it's going back up and their relocated stores were not included in comps which should be noteworthy but their comparable sales actually did fall 0.1% over last year's third quarter. We're super curious to see how those new stores, those 20 stores or so, are going to perform this time next year. When comparing comps, comp numbers came in below guidance, which was flat, but only a slight miss versus analyst expectations. And even though Big Lots is now only a partial off-price store there, as Trent's explanation would outline, there were some positive progression in the area of inventory on hand and they aim to build inventory for a few quarters now wanting to bolster their furniture and soft home selection they did exactly this as overall inventory was up four percent over last year again this was a planned increase so everything in terms of internal guidance was met as far as inventory and some of the increase resulted from their planned sales increases from the relocated or expanded stores although the vast majority stemmed from the furniture and the home build out finally from the numerical standpoint they reiterated full year earnings per share estimates and are hoping to see comp sales go up slightly in the fourth quarter. If you look at some of the highlights here from the executives on the call, CEO Bruce Thorne spent a good deal of time on the call discussing their Store of the Future format, which ties in directly to their Operation North Star. And you see here, essentially, this Store of the Future reimagines their previous setup, which often featured home goods towards the left, groceries on the right, and furniture in the back. The store of the future instead moves furniture front and center with the company acknowledging that this segment not only drives sales but also margin in fact the transitioning of their store base to this layout has contributed to that increased inventory level and furniture given its prime real estate position there in the store in any case nearly one third of their stores have completed the transition to this concept and they have more than 250 more of these layouts than the same time last year curious to see how this works out Trent I have not actually been to one the big lots near where I live has actually stayed the same for several years according to store management there
0: I've been to one of the big lots in this market that I live in that actually has switched over, and according to the company, the dividends have already been reaped from the locations that have transferred to the new layout, with year one stores offering a high single-digit comps increase. Beyond the comps increase, they're seeing increased momentum in furniture, home goods, and seasonal, which are all wheelhouse categories for them, in these new stores or in the new store layouts. Additionally, customer surveys, they say, note significantly more customer satisfaction and higher net promoter scores for the recently changed locations. They're also hoping that a new partnership they've got coming up with Broyhill will help to bolster their initiatives to bring furniture front and center. Of course, Broyhill, the well-known furniture brand, they've already invested heavily in marketing the Broyhill brand name, Surrounding this rollout and messages surrounding the Hill rollout have already been pushed to some of their rewards members. Now, this rollout is going to take place in limited stores. Mostly those stores of the future, we'd guess, in January with a full rollout planned for April. Now, I mentioned seasonal and mentioning that one feature they're backbuilding into existing store of the future layouts is something they're calling the lot And this is something that was not originally in their stores of the future, but they have decided to add it to their stores of the future as they go. The lot, which sounds a lot like targets the spot in the front of the store, doesn't it? Anyway, it features 500 square feet of rotating merchandise immediately adjacent to store entry. This area, very heavy on seasonal. Seasonal is the key to this area. Examples given on the call for the third quarter, included dorm room merchandise, Halloween merchandise, and also tailgating suggestions in this part of the store. Now the lot is in a limited number of the new layouts currently, but the success they've seen with the concept is leading to leadership declaring that all of the Store of the Future layouts will have this section by the end of 2020, including all new Store of the Future renovations. How much success are those individual stores seeing with the lot? Well, the limited store base with this section have seen a 1% to 2% increase in comps strictly from the lot merchandise. So, positive development given the relatively low amount of square footage it requires. You have to think this is a win for big lots to continue to roll this out. Now, this is perhaps the most interesting thing I got from the call. We started out the story by discussing Big Lot's desire to be seen as a neighborhood retailer, keeping those essentials on hand. This initiative started in earnest about a decade ago. They started to put coolers in the stores. It really ramped up about five years ago with the merchandise mix developments and fresh goods implementation in their consumable sections. Well, on this call, leadership actually signaled a desire to step back from this. There were some conflicting statements around this. Now, Thorne, again, their CEO, said at one point that the goal for their customers is, and I quote, to find even more items on their list at our stores. But in the next breath, he said they will be, and again, I quote, rebalancing footage from food staple items and relocating to food entertainment and consumables, end quote. So on one hand, they want the customers to find even more on their list at the stores. On the other hand, they want those staples to kind of decrease in number, So they can have more of that bargain hunt feel about them. And I would think at least staples are the items most often on the traditional shopping list. But in any case, Thorne actually confirmed on the call point blank what Leighton has actually suggested for years now on the show. Their coolers are low margin in the stores and expensive to maintain. They've seen minimal merchandise turn in the cooler section as well. Coolers now average about 20 linear feet in Big Lots location, so not even as much as the traditional Dollar Tree necessarily, but they want to cut the coolers down to a single end cap now. They hope maintenance, which is something that people forget about cooler units, they are tremendously expensive to maintain. And if they go out, that is a lot of shrink on that merchandise, but They're hoping the maintenance will be less expensive, easier to implement on the smaller units, but also they're hoping that limiting the merchandise selection in this area, maybe not offering a bunch of different types of frozen food, for example, will encourage less shrink and greater turn. However, it is a bit of a double-edged sword and they can't get rid of their coolers completely because Thorne did note on the call they still must carry some cooler items. Removing them completely is not an option, and here's why. They have to maintain EBT and SNAP eligibility. Something actually came up on the Kroger card about them cycling through SNAP also at the beginning of the year, but this is such a huge thing that not a lot of people talk about. If you carry any type of grocery item, being able to accept EBT and SNAP is a huge benefit. A retailer I worked out about a couple of decades ago, They spent three to four years retrofitting the store to be able to take EBT or SNAP benefits just to kind of reap the benefits from those cards. And once they got to that point, the benefits were big in terms of that top line revenue. Generally speaking, though, they're still searching for that balance between everyday items and the treasure hunt bargains in food. And that's something that's been an ongoing struggle for them in the past decade. We've seen the lever move increasingly away from bargains in the food portion of their stores. And as Leighton mentioned a few years back, this actually flies in the face of what their core customer seems to want. Their core customer really wants that bargain hunt. You don't go to big lots to pick up milk and bread. You go to big lots to see what is new on those shelves, what kind of value you can get from that. But to that end, it appears as though they've recognized this. And they are looking to put more of what they call the surprise and delight product offerings in their consumables section.
1: Tying it with consumables, they are working to refresh their front end and particularly the checkout section of the store. This is something that is badly needed in our point of view, as the front end in most stores we visited is a bit messy and indistinct lanes, often lines, and a pitiful selection of impulse buys there for those consumers. They also Really want to change a lot of other things here. The main goal of improving throughput, but also the underscoring impulse buys. And they are in the midst of revisiting their selection of impulse buys, including candy, and feel confident that they can put something better together for their consumer. To be honest, it would be almost difficult to not put forth something a little bit better than what they have now, given the current state of their check stands. Finally, the one thing that we really haven't heard much about on Big Lots calls is e-commerce but it is featured prominently on this latest one they've increased the scope of their buy online pickup and store options to all stores and they've seen incremental improvement in store performance surrounding it they noted that the main category for use in buy online pickup and store is of course furniture for them and that they are seeing concrete evidence to back up the notion that customers picking up products in stores are also picking up those impulse buys while they're there so they're picking up other things than just the furniture which they had picked up or at least bought online originally and they noted that they've been able to double their number of SKUs offered online as a result of those buy online pickup and store options overall we can see some reason for positivity for the retailer though maybe not as much as the market seemed to see on Friday their stock price was up over 25% at times in trading on Friday December 6th We are in agreement that the new layout needs to be emphasized and that furniture is a good place to hang their hat and that any front end renovation would be welcome, especially for some of those older locations. However, we are doubtful that they will be able to quickly find the correct mix in consumables and worry about their saturation in certain categories, such as soft home. And with so many retailers clamoring for that portion of the marketplace, it is going to be hard for them to find their footing. Additionally, we are concerned they are making a concerted effort to move away from toys as mentioned on the call toys were actually down in the third quarter as a result of less selection and floor space as they move towards other categories aforementioned categories might not be wise to just leave this category out for others to pick up there's still plenty of market share out there for them and other off pricers have seen definite success in this particular area i was at a ross recently trent they had a massive toy section a company that barely had a half aisle dedicated toys not more than a half decade ago so definitely an area that they need to still stay focused on even if it takes up a smaller percentage of the overall store space they can't give up on it and that is our view we have an ambivalent outlook for big lots on the whole better off now than they were just a few years ago maybe but still a lot to clean up in order to make substantial strides in terms of market share one last thing trend i wanted to note is that Big Lots after closing those underperforming locations over the last 2 to 3 years, they really do have a really solid footprint in terms of where they are at. So, they're in these regional shopping centers typically with high traffic. They they know their target demographic and I will say the stores still standing are in optimal locations for their target customer they just have to make sure that their merchandise mix is right and that they're attracting not only the same customer over and over those repeat customers that they're trying to take care of especially with their rewards program but to also acquire new customers and i think their e-commerce entrance is sort of going to aid that going forward
0: As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We've reached the final segment of the Retail Focus Podcast, a segment we call Looking Ahead, where H. Layton and I take a look at a story we're keeping an eye on over the next week, month, or year. We're recording this here on Sunday the 8th, and coming up in just a couple of days. This is my looking ahead story, by the way. Cons Home Plus actually will release their third quarter earnings. Now, the reason I'm looking ahead to this is precisely why we covered furniture so much in the Big Lot story. It is a major category for a number of other retailers. Cons is seen as somewhat of a growing retailer, they have 133 retail locations, but. They're kind of in the same segment that not necessarily Big Lots is, but maybe a a company like At Home is, except without the off-price aspect of it. They sell furniture, related accessories, consumer electronics. Honestly, a little bit like a mashup between an Ashley Furniture Home Store and an HH Gregg, and they do have that in-house credit aspect. But the reason I'm looking ahead to this earnings call is, cons is more or less in terms of the stock price sitting right between a 52-week high and a 52-week low. But it is my opinion that we're seeing a lot more discretionary spending on things like furniture as people, despite the fact that consumer confidence is said to be declining a little bit based on the news stories that you see out there about consumer confidence. It's my belief that ultimately companies like Cons stand to benefit because people are willing to spend money now the issue for a company like cons is they are a smaller retail company just 133 of those locations so can they fend off the likes of larger competitors big lots for example carrying more furniture as well as the off-pricers, to have a good quarter. I really want to look into this, and we'll be covering this on next week's podcast. It'll be the first time we'll have covered cons on the podcast, but very much looking forward to their earnings call on Tuesday.
1: My Looking ahead, oddly enough, has to do with another earnings call that we saw earlier, and this was five below as they topped the third-quarter estimates late on Wednesday. This wasn't a main story, Trent, because we've covered five below extensively over the last two years, really talked about their growth story and how they're trying to eye certain particular audience there with their customer base but you're looking here at a company that did mediocre for their third quarter and this is interesting because this is a story about chinese tariffs chinese tariffs are going to hit on december 15th and five below they did see their stock rise a little bit but they did see that they're guiding a little bit lower in terms of their estimates for revenue and you look trent Revenue and margins are going to be hindered here because they're going to have to up the price of the things They sell simply put what they're buying is going to go up in price Therefore they have to pass that on to the consumer if they want to shelter margins for the mid to long term And if you're looking Trent versus Wall Street analyst estimates earnings per share actually was down a little bit from last year but up a penny over what was expected which is really good also up was revenue. Around 20% up over last year, they brought in $377 million. Same store sales grew 2.9%. If you're looking a little bit deeper into the numbers, and this is why it's my looking ahead trend, not only are they looking at those 25% tariffs on Chinese imports, they're looking at a bit of headwinds going forward because of their expansion. It has been immense over the last couple of years. They've opened a ton of new stores and they're paying very high rents in a number of these locations. This is not a retailer like these Bargain Outlet or even Big Lots where they're okay going into a B or C-class shopping center. They're going into a lot of A-class or B-plus shopping centers that are relatively new and that are tailored for, let's say, middle or upper middle class customers. And I think that Overall, you are seeing a sort of maturation of this company. The question is how much are they going to be expanding now that they have compressed margins, or at least looking in the face of potentially compressed margins? And that's exactly why it's my looking ahead story. This company has been on a tear despite a number of well-known analysts from a number of different firms saying that this company was destined for failure three or four years ago before the stock was reaching all-time highs. And so I am curious now to see the next three to five-year time horizon and to see if they can carry the momentum from the last half decade forward and and really reinvest in the company and not really take profits right now. Because the company is still Going to be trying to find new ways to innovate. They still have to get new and fresh merchandise to put in front of their customer base because, in order to prove to the market, I'm talking about the shareholders and the analysts, that they're not just a one hit wonder, it is going to be a tough job for their procurement teams. And this is something that we've been talking about for quite some time, Trent. They've been killing it on the stock market, but is this going to be a story of a retailer that? has really seen a lot of success early on, but then it fizzles off as soon as they expand into all of these new markets.
0: That'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors as well as all of our listeners out there. Did have an interview lined up for this week, but it had to be postponed until next week because of a scheduling conflict. So we'll have a great interview regarding apparel retail coming up on the next podcast. Make sure stay tuned for that this coming weekend, and we'll be back with you just a few days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher.
1: Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.